Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Denise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. I am so thrilled to share my conversation with Abby Epstein, the director of the fascinating and evocative documentary, The Business of Birth Control. Abby shares her own powerful and very personal story of self-discovery and change after coming off hormonal contraception. Please enjoy today's episode. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I'm really excited to have you here and talk about all of the amazing work that you do, your films. But first, let's talk about the story of your first period. (laughs) I love this. I love that you focus on this. I think it's such a fantastic thing to think about and talk about. And so I had to kind of dig a little bit, you know, to remember um, and what I remember is it's kind of interesting because you know how in middle school, I don't know why, but everybody knew when everybody got their period, it was just that weird thing where you'd whisper in the halls, you know, like Nicole got it last weekend and this one got it and that one got it. And, you know, generally I, it starts young, like people start at 10 years old or in like, you know, fifth grade and I was just one of those people that never got it. And middle school went, came and went and high school was starting, you know, secondary school and I still didn't have it. And so it sort of came down to this where I won't say her last name on the podcast, but it was me and this other girl, Sarah, and like everybody knew that like she and I hadn't had our periods yet. And then Sarah got hers. And it was just like, yes, you know, you could tell she was like so happy. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And I think at the time I was just about almost 16 years old. And um, I also was dancing ballet a couple times a week. So people like, oh, that can also, you know, delay your period. I wasn't like underweight, but I was dancing. And then my mom said, you know, we're going to, I want to take you to the gynecologist and just, you know, whatever, make sure everything's okay. So we went to the gynecologist and, you know, she she basically kind of said something like, well, if it, you know, if if it doesn't come and this time I might have to like give you something to like bring it on, like some kind of medication and that completely flipped me out. Right. So we left that. And then it was like a few weeks before my 16th birthday. (laughs) And we went on a family vacation to Hawaii. And I remember I met this boy and we had sort of like a little, you know, fooling around on the beach. Like I wasn't sexually active, but, you know, it was that stage where you're kissing and you're just kind of feeling and, you know, a lot of hand play. Um, And then I came back from that vacation And I remember like I woke up to go to school and there was like a couple dots of blood on my underwear. And I was like, oh my God, like I was so happy. And I remember thinking like, maybe it was that boy. Like maybe when I was with him, he touched something down there. I don't know. He like broke something. I don't know. It's like he broke my hymen. I couldn't, I didn't know, but I was like, he must've helped me in some way. Or it was the pressure of thinking it was so funny. And I remember, I'll never forget this. I wore a purple straight long skirt. I was obsessed with prints and I wore lots of purple and I had this purple straight long skirt and I had a big bulky pad and I was in school and I couldn't stop like hinting to everyone, you know, like I couldn't stop saying like, oh, my pad, my pad is so uncomfortable. Oh, my underwear. Oh, is my pad sticking out? Can you see my, I mean, I literally 
I mean, I'm surprised I didn't like walk down the hallways with like the big bloody maxi pad in front of me, like, you know, like a badge of honor, like stuck on my shirt. I mean, it was, I have to tell you, it was like such a joy and such a relief. And also I was like, I'd been waiting for it for so long that I remember saying to my mom, like all casual, like, oh, mom, do you have any pads? I just got my period. Yeah. Do you have any pads? You know, and she tried to play it off also really like, oh, and I should mention that my younger sister is like two and a half years younger than me. And of course had been having her period probably for a couple of years at that point. So it was like double embarrassing, you know, that my little sister is menstruating, but yeah, so that's the story. <laughs> so when you finally got it, did you mm-hmm. know what to expect? Did you know what was going to happen beyond, okay, you're going to see this blood, you wear pads. Did you have, were you educated or had you educated yourself? No, I really didn't know very much. I knew that my sister was having a pretty rough time. So my, my sister was having a lot of like, and she was an athlete, so it was hard. And she, I knew she was having like some very heavy cramping and like sometimes would like not go to school or come home from school. And um, they were trying like different pain relievers and things. So I, I knew about that. Um, I didn't, I remember the pads. Um, I don't remember switching to tampons, but at some point I did. And I remember a friend or somebody telling me about, you know, that you have to angle it and you don't just shoot it straight up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I didn't know very much. And it's it's kind of funny, Lenise, because since I started, you know, making my documentary and getting some more education around all of this, I kind of look back. And the interesting thing is, I think that I, I may have had some either, you know, PCOS or some early PCOS, because like looking back on the symptoms and looking back on the, the sort of like delay in the period. And then I had some other things that line up, you know, with PCOS actually, because I had um, like very early, like um, acne. Like I had, like, I remember I had acne, like all over my forehead when I was like 11 or, you know, very young. Um, I had acne. I had acne on my chest. I remember in ballet, you know, I had like some acne. And I remember when I went to the gynecologist that time, when I didn't get my printer, I remember her saying something to me about um, testing my hormones, that she wanted to test my hormones because she thought I had some like excess hair. You know, there were just like signs where she thought I might have. And so it's kind of interesting you know, looking back, I I actually feel really lucky, you know, because I, I think that I probably did have something going on like hormonally and, um, you know, I'm lucky that my period did finally come and that, you know, things were not regular at all because that's ultimately how I ended up on the pill. Um, but it's, you know, it's uh, to me, it's like fascinating sort of how little I knew um, how little I knew about periods, about my cycle and, you know, looking back now with all this knowledge and wondering, you know, what, I don't know, like what might've been different had anyone put those pieces together. And when you got your period and you were going around the halls at school in your purple <laughs> skirt, and, you know, I love that it was like a tribute to Prince, um, <laughs> Did you, you mentioned the kind of whispers about periods and how everyone knew. Um, Did you, how did you eventually tell your friends and what was their reaction? Oh, I couldn't wait. I mean, we're talking, you know, pre-cell phone. So I would have had to wait until I got to school. But I remember telling my best friend, Nassimi, she, and she and I also, this was like two years later, we were also like the last of the virgins. Like that was another thing, you know, I remember I was like, I was still a virgin when I graduated high school. And again, you could count on one hand who were the girls. And it was like a similar kind of, you know, accounting people do. But, oh, yeah, I mean, it just went through the halls. Like I couldn't wait. I could 
told everybody, everybody, you know, um, in subtle and not so subtle ways. And it was very, you know, I felt very grown up in the complaining about it, you know, oh, I have to change my pad now. And, oh, you know, it was like, oh my God. Um, and then I don't remember actually, like, I don't remember those like last few years of high school tracking it or counting days or having any idea. I remember I must have, I think had it from time to time. Cause I know that two years later when I went to university, it just completely stopped. So that I, so I knew, so I must've known that something was different. Like I must've known that it stopped. So I, but I, I honestly have no idea at least if I was having like a monthly period or every, I have absolutely no idea. There was no, I was never taught to track it or look at the days or. And what was the point that you, you said you went on the pill? Was that when you lost it, when you went to university? Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. And that was really a very traumatic experience because I remember when I went to university, I must've, um, I guess I must've, um, you know, it was sometime in my freshman, sophomore year, or maybe I, I didn't menstruate much my freshman year, but I remember it was like my sophomore year, you know, when I really, um, didn't have a period at all. And I think that again, looking back, there are so many factors, right? I mean, one is, I don't know if there was some PCOS going on or there was some hormonal, I have no idea, you know, was never told. I mean, I, I assume, I remember the gynecologist saying she wanted to test my hormones and then I never heard anything. So I'm assuming that, I don't know, um, everything was okay. But you know, when I did go back home for my like annual exam, she was very like keen to put me on the pill, but not only put me on the pill, she gave me like 10 days or a week of uh, hormones that I had to take to bring on a, a, a period so that I could then start the pill. And, you know, it was unbelievably torturous because I, she, there was just no warning given about anything. And all I know is I start taking these pills and I'm thinking this is necessary, you know, that because I have to menstruate because this isn't good. And then, you know, I'm sure she's thinking, well, this will be a double, you know, protection for you because then you'll be on the pill anyway. So you'll have contraception. But I wasn't even sexually active. And um, I just remember like, riding my bicycle to class at like eight in the morning. And I would have to like pull the bicycle over because I would just be sobbing, like sobbing and, you know, sort of irrationally sobbing like a child, like, like I miss my mom, you know, or just like literally crying like a baby. And so I think like many women do, I just thought there was some kind of depression, anxiety going on. I didn't connect it to these hormone pills that she had given me, you know, to bring on immenses. I just didn't, I was never warned. I didn't know. I didn't connect any of it. Um, and then the pill she gave me when I did start it and I did everything like a good girl and you know, I was supposed to do. Um, it was really awful for me. Um, it was just awful. And like the side effects were awful. And I think I just stuck it out for a a while, probably the whole semester until I remember going home and going back to her. And I remember sitting in her office and just crying. It just started crying in the office um, because I felt terrible and I had gained weight and I was just feeling awful. And she was kind of, you know, shocked. And she said, oh, you know, there's um everybody has such a different chemistry and I, I really wish that these pills came in a more individualized way so that we could know, you know, how different people's, you know, um, hormones were going to react. But, you know, it seems like this, this pill isn't, isn't a good fit for you and let's try it a different one. Um, but it was like so interesting because she was actually very compassionate, but I wouldn't have known, like I never would have known when I was at school and suffering to call her or call my mom or say, you know, something's happening. I, it might, I think it's this pill. 
Um, I just thought it was me. Like, I just thought it was having like a depressive year at school, you know, or something. I just thought it was me. And um, so then, yeah, then we switched to a different pill. um, And that was more tolerable for me. And so I ended up, you know, staying on that one for, for many years to come. Um, but ended up having other problems <laughs> on that pill, um, which again, you know, I I really didn't connect until I made this documentary. How long in total were you on the pill? I would say it was must have been like about eight or nine years. It was like probably like twenty to twenty nine. Right. Okay. Almost and a decade. Almost a decade. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what was the impetus for you to come off of the pill? Um, you know, there was kind of this instinct that I had, I don't know how else to explain it. I was in a monogamous relationship and I was, you know, I think 29 and I was thinking, you know, I don't know. It was like an intuitive thing where I thought, I feel like I should like give my body a break from this. And I was thinking, you know, I'm nearly 30 and I'm going to be thinking about children. I knew I wanted children. And I was like, I'm going to be thinking about maybe children in the next couple of years. And so I, I feel I should like, you know, kind of clean house. And there's really, I don't know why I'm sort of on this anymore, but I, I think there was, you know, at that point I was like in such a steady state, um, and the things that were had been happening to me that whole decade were um, chronic UTI and vaginal dryness, which I had no idea was in any way connected to that birth control pill. So those things that that had been bothering me, you know, with my sexual health, I didn't even think were connected to the pill. Like they were in no way an impetus to get off. Um, I did, you know like struggle with acne when I was younger. So I did like that, you know, it had kind of calmed all of that down and that my, you know, my skin was clear. So I think like a lot of, you know, young women, there was probably that fear of like making a change, you know, because everything felt so like stable and my skin was stable. Um, But it really, I think, you know, that going off moment, um, I don't think I knew it the at the time. I mean, I remember, (laughs) I remember one of the first things when I went off is after like a couple months, I was like, oh my God, those were not my breasts. Like I don't have, you know, this like big C cup or whatever. I actually, and I was, you know, I remember kind of laughing because I was thinking, oh my God, like, you know, because I had, I remember something about my wedding dress and I was thinking, ah, I should have gone off before because my wedding dress would have fit so much better in the bus. <laughs> like I didn't. So I remember that was like kind of a dramatic thing. Like you forget. I thought those were my boobs. Those were not my boobs. Those were pill boobs. So <laughs> you know, my boobs kind of went away. And but I really liked that, like returning to myself. You know, I really, really liked um, that coming back to myself and. I, a lot of things changed um, emotionally and I had a big um, partner switch. I ended up leaving the partner that I was with um, at the time, which again, these are things I did not connect for, you know, years and years and years. So, you know, it's really crazy. Like it just so many things like when I was reading, you know, Holly's book, Sweetening the Pill, I remember like reading all this, this studies about like partner attraction and this, and even the vaginal dryness, the UTIs. I mean, I just, my God, I was like, there were so many things that I experienced that were so, you know, textbook Mm. and, um, you know, and to this day, it's like, I, I do wonder, like, I really wonder if, if somebody had done the underlying work, right. To see, why my period had stopped, for example, you know, I just, I don't know. I wonder what I could have uncovered about myself. You know, I do wonder if the UTIs 
like if I would have suffered with those, you know, cause those sort of never stopped, you know, so there are things that I don't know that you just like wonder about, like how would it, your whole kind of sexual life, relational life, you know, been different without that decade on the pill. I also was interesting cause I did learn, you know, other things about how, um, you know, just, just what, you know, turning off your own endogenous hormones, like how that can affect in some ways, even your own compassion, sensitivity. And I I do look back on my twenties and certain periods. And I feel that I was not only sort of disconnected from myself, but very hard driving, um, very ambitious. And, you know, sometimes even, um, a little bit, I don't know, like kind of cutthroat, you know what I mean? Like, like behaving in ways that are really not me, um, at all. Like, I'm really not like that. Like I'm just incredibly empathetic, compassionate person. And so, you know, a lot of things, like I really look back and just wonder like how much did this really affect, you know, my personality, um, my attraction. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It, it really is. You had a huge change after coming off the pill, emotional changes, changes in your relationship. And then when you came off the pill, how long did it take for you to get your period back? So that I don't remember. I remember very, very clearly that, you know, my libido kind of roared back. And that's something that a lot of women have, you know, described, but I remember it being um, just sort of shocking because I just thought I wasn't a very sexual person. You know, I just thought like on the scale, you know, I did have climax. I did experience orgasm. I did have quote unquote, you know, good sex, but I didn't have a drive. Like I didn't have, you know, I mean, it was, you know, the only, the only thing I could, the last time I had felt sort of libido that way was, you know, maybe back in my senior year of high school before I started the pill, you know, that was sort of what I could equate that real feelings of sex drive and libido. So that, I remember that being like the most kind of shocking and like obvious difference and and also a huge relief, right? To think that maybe you're not such a sexual person and then um, you are. And then I know that um, my period came back pretty soon. I didn't have like a, a whole, you know, I mean, I think it came back within the first like two months or, you know, it there, there wasn't an issue. And then I was very, I would say like um, I did have... I remember, um, you know, cramps. I, I had like s- period symptoms that I, I I hadn't had like, you know, back in high school. Um, maybe I didn't even have that many periods in high school, but because I didn't keep track. But, um, you know, it was definitely, you know, regular. And um, and I remember having to kind of deal with the, the cramping. Um, but it's very like, even today, it's funny because it's like, I still, you know, um, have a very regular period. And, and, and when I did, so I, I think I went off the pill about, um, four years before I got pregnant for the first time. And so once I was like back in my regular, you know, cycling in my thirties, um, it was so easy for me. Like I, from, from, I would say like for four or five years, my partner and I, new partner, um, we didn't use any barrier methods. We didn't use any contraception. Um, I did not know about fertility awareness, but my cycle was like so regular that I roughly knew like my fertile week Let's, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but we were just able to time things in such a way. And then when we were like, yes, let's have a child. It was like, first try, boom, first try, 
out the door done, you know, so I feel really lucky. And then, and then my fertility journey was so, so easy, like so easy, you know, getting my periods back after breastfeeding, second child, same thing, first try, boom, you know, so it's, I feel lucky, uh, um, you know, in some ways, but I don't, I don't know that like, to me, you know, that, that whole period, I think that whole decade when I was on the pill, although, um, you know, I guess it's easy to look back, right. Everyone can look back and say, well, I'm very happy I had that. And because I didn't have to think about pregnancy. I understand that I was a very monogamous person. So I wasn't a person who had one night stands or had like multiple partners. So I'm not really sure (laughs) that, you know, the, the sort of not worrying, I was never worried about getting pregnant. Like I would, that was never a fear. I didn't have a fear like that. Um, you know, because I wasn't sexually active till I was 19. And then I was like, mostly, you know, with partners. So I didn't really have that fear, but you know, I do look back and think like more about how that would have affected me emotionally and in terms of like partner choice. Um, but you know, I feel lucky that I didn't have problems like with my cycle after that or any problems like with fertility. It's really interesting that you, you said that you thought that you may have had PCOS um, and then once you got your period back after you came off the pill, how it came back in a really regular way, you described it being like clockwork. Um, and that's so, so fascinating. Just thinking about it in the context of where, where you were when you started, you had a really late period. Um, and also just thinking about that decade that you had on the pill. And I do sense a kind of regret there um, of what could have been and do you feel like when you got your period back and you discovered who you really were there was a kind of mourning that you had to go through well I think you know the biggest thing more in terms of mourning was just um the relationship stuff you know because I think that is incredibly hard um like when you when your like true sexual nature is 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 awoken in that way and you realize that you just don't have sexual chemistry with this wonderful person that you love in every way and so you know i think it was it was very traumatic yeah. um you know it was extremely traumatic to and confusing, you know, and confusing. And I think that, you know, it it's like almost the way I could explain it is it's a little bit of like a sleeping beauty thing. So it's like, like waking up in your body, let's say, you know, at 29 or 30, but kind of sexual, emotional intelligence, you're like 16. You know, that's kind of what it felt like. Like it was like, I couldn't sort of control it anymore, you know, and it's was sort of like, I couldn't live in this lie in a sense, you know what I mean? Like I was basically in, um, like a marriage that was platonic and it was deep and there was full of love, you know, but it was really platonic and, you know, there, there was sex, but it wasn't in any way, the kind of sex that I, come to new and experience later, you know? So, you know, it was, I felt like, um, you know, being disconnected from that piece of yourself. Right. And, and now understanding, like, I think how much libido is sort of diminished as sex drive when that is not what libido is. Libido is your life force. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's, it really you know, so for me, I was only connected to a masculine life force. I was connected to a life force around work, around achieving. And that's what I was doing. I was winning awards and achieving, 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 you know, like at a very young age. And that was my life force. You know, that's what was, what was feeding me. And then suddenly to go off and sort of I think I got almost like overwhelmed, right? By this whole 
world of like, you know, real kind of sexuality and attraction that I had shut off. That's the only way I can explain it. It was sort of like, you know, shut off. And every once in a while, um, you know, I would get like a window into it and sort of a little wake up, but then it wouldn't really stick, you know, where I would think, oh, maybe I'm missing something, but no. And so that's, I think that's what's sort of confusing. It's like when you are not experiencing yourself, right? With, with, we know that hormones, your hormones interact with your environment to create yourself, right? I mean, if you read Dr. Sarah Hill's book, you can understand that they create the version of your brain that forms your personality. So I think, you know, disconnecting from that, yeah, it's almost like I was living kind of a, like a, like a shadow life, you know? And then when I sort of in my thirties got plugged into, you know, myself, um, it just rocked everything, you know, it just created huge upheaval. And again, I don't know that it was, I was making the best decisions either because I think I was again, like this 16 year old, you know what I mean? Who's just been sort of handed the keys to the kingdom. And it's like, Oh my God, this, you know, this is what this is supposed to feel like. Um, So then I think I was making more decisions just really based on passion, you know, and attraction and sort of, you know, because I had been, um, disconnected from it for so long. So it's, it's, it's so, I mean, I think that it's so fascinating to, to think about like how we, you know, and, and again, honestly, Lise, like there was, you know, that whole decade that I really like stayed on that pill, there really was no reason. Like I said, like I was in a monogamous relationship, you know, I didn't have like a reproductive health issue that I knew about that I was like needing to be on the pill, like, you know, heavy periods or endometriosis. There was no like medical reason. Hmm. It's just this weird feeling of like, well, I don't know, things are, things are good, you know? And what if I, what if I went off and then this happened or, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just interesting. I think sometimes how we just lock in to um like thinking in some way that this is part of like being the good girl you know it's like you take the pills and you know everybody's happy and you don't have to worry about that um but oh my god I mean looking back it's just like it's really it's it's just like shocking when I didn't know What's interesting is that you you mentioned the idea of being the good girl and a few other guests that I've spoken to on the podcast have described this idea of being the good girl and as also linked to the rite of passage of going on the pill. So you turn 16 or 17, your friends are on the pill, it's your turn, you get your you get your period. Now it's your turn to go on the pill. And I remember one guest describing it as kind of like, you know, every girl in her high school was on the pill. And I just wonder about, I mean, I have lots of you know questions about all of this, but in terms of your experience and then kind of linking into the film, the brilliant film that you made, the business of birth control, was your experience kind of the driver, one of the drivers for you making this film? I think it definitely was a driver, of course, because I feel, you know, so the first film that Ricky Lake and I made together is called The Business of Being Born. So that is a really funny story because that film we started making because of Ricky's birth experiences. And then I got pregnant during the filming and ended up giving birth in the movie. So we both give birth in the movie, but hers is, hers is, you know, like footage that she had kept. And mine is like live, you know, like following my birth in this, in this movie. So I think, um, it's it's funny, right? Because the business of being born, I didn't make that film because I had a passion for midwifery. 
<laughs> like I didn't even know what a midwife did, you know? So I, I made that film because I was sort of fascinated as a feminist that I'd been so unexposed and was kind of fascinated by Ricky's story. You know, I didn't know I was going to become part of, part of the story. Right. So with the business of birth control, when I think when I read Holly Griggsball's book, Sweetening the Pill, she had sent me the galley. The book hadn't been published. And I read it on the airplane when I was flying from New York to LA to meet with Ricky about another project we were doing. And I like got off the plane and said, Ricky, oh my God, like I just read this book and all these light bulbs went off. Like so many light bulbs went off. And, and some of it is, you know, you get kind of so angry, right? About the mistreatment that you experience and the gaslighting that you experience. And so, you know, that was also a real trigger for me. Like, I'll just give you one quick example. I hope I'm not getting too graphic on your podcast. Um, <laughs> but I mentioned like um, vaginal dryness, okay, for example. And so this can be a real side effect um, of hormonal birth control that people don't know about. So in my 20s, um, when I was, you know, having sex with this long-term partner, we would use, you know, lubricant or whatever, but still there would be this like dryness. And so at one point I, I actually had like, um, like an abrasion almost like at, like on the bottom of my vagina, like, you know, just, you know, almost at the, at the, at the perineum, it was just, you know, like, it was like literally rubbed, you know, like, like a menopausal woman would get, you mm. know? And I remember I went to the gynecologist. She wasn't there that day. So I saw this man, one of her partners, and he looked at me and he said, that is herpes. And I said, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I said, actually, I've, I've only had one partner and we're both, we were both virgins when we met and I've never slept with anyone else. And he's never slept with anyone else. This it's actually not herpes. Um, could you tell me what's going on? Cause it's, you know, I'm, I get these when we have sex and I don't understand. He said, trust me, that is herpes. I'm going to run the test, but I'm so sure that, and he gave me these like antiviral medications and literally told me I needed to start taking them that day. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. And I'm so confused and I'm like, whatever, 26, 27 years old. And I'm talking to my partner. I'm like, I don't understand. Like what? I'm like, is some, are you doing something that you're not telling me? Whatever. He was like, no, this is like crazy. I mean, I remember so embarrassed. I was in my hometown and I had to go to the pharmacy and like fulfill these prescriptions for antiviral. Of course, within whatever, two, three days, they call. And of course, the test is negative. Hmm. But the experience of it, he was so arrogant. He was so sure. And he did not believe me. He did not believe me. And he didn't want to look for any other reason. And I think that as a white woman of privilege to experience that, you know, and to be, um, it, it, it's so infuriating, you know, it is honestly, it is so infuriating. It's so abusive. Mm. And, and so I think I was, I was angry and I was angry about my experience of going on that first pill that really wrecked an entire year of university for me. I mean, completely ruined it. Like I was a complete depressive, you know, and I, it's, it's just an all completely unnecessary, mm. you know, and such a lack of informed consent, you know, such a lack of understanding. And so I think that I was, you know, reading this book and, and connecting the dots in my own head and then looking at what I experienced, let's say, um, within the reproductive health system, which is like, a two on the scale of one to 10 of what other women experienced. Mm. And I'm reading these stories. Um, I was just like, my God, I said to Ricky, we've got to talk about this. Like we, we have to, this is going to be very unpopular. People are going to be very mad about that. We're doing this, but I don't know. It's like, who's going to talk about this? You know, mm. who's going to tell these stories? I just felt like we can have a liberal 
critique of hormonal birth control. Like we can be like liberal progressives and we can still critique this and find this gray space um, where we can talk about, you know, health and, and, and safety. So, you know, to me, I think it's all in a way, I think it's sometimes funny, Lenise, because people will say to me, oh, you know, your films, like, do you have something against the medical system? And I'm like, my God, this has nothing to do with the medical system. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how growing up with a uterus in the world means that you are funneled into this kind of reproductive health industrial complex Mm. that directly impacts so many aspects of your life. This is not just about, you know, getting pregnant and having a cyst removed and going to the hospital to give birth. No, like these are decisions that impact, you know, partner choice and sexuality and personality and depression. And, you know, from, and so it just really connected for me that it's like, I made this movie about childbirth you know, women tend to wake up a bit when they're in that phase of trying to conceive and having children. And the reason I think that they wake up a bit is because there's something really powerful about pregnancy that rewires your brain. Mm. And I think that they wake up a bit and they're also thinking about you know, they're starting to think for two people, you know, they're starting to think about, well, it's not just about you know, my health, it's about protecting this child's health. And that's easier, right? Like we hear that story all the time, right? Like with battered women, they don't leave the abuser until the abuser hits the child. Mm. Then they leave, right? Like, and that's basically, you know, a lot of ways how women are built. So it's like, but but when I thought about making this film and reading Holly's book, I was like, no, 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 no. This has to start way before pregnancy. (laughs) You know, this has to start um, as soon as fertility, you know, begins, like this needs to start at, you know, nine, 10 years old, the body literacy piece, the body literacy piece needs to start. And then there, you know, this whole conversation around contraception, it's not medical. It's just, it's not, it's not medical. It's like, there are so many spaces, I believe, where this is so much about a collective wisdom, wisdom passed down from ancestors, you know, knowing this is about knowing that is like generational. And, you know, I think that's why you see, you know, we just had some news come out that 2021 was the highest rates of home birth in the United States in 30 years. Wow. Amazing statistic. Now I know some of that was driven by the pandemic and people not wanting to birth in hospital. I get it, but it's more than that. It's that, you know, women and and people in general are discovering, right. That there are spaces that they've given over completely to the medical complex, surrendered all power, all decision-making to doctors, professionals, and they're taking that back, you know, taking that back and saying, you know, no, 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 this is the way I want to birth. And this is how I want my child to come in, or this is, you know, and I, and I think that um, it's, it's, it's so complicated around the contraceptive space in general, because it seems like everybody with a penis has been released from this conversation. It's like, (laughs) you know, there's just no accountability. Yeah. Right. And then there's this kind of, you know, way that we've categorized unplanned pregnancies, you know, which you see in religion and in the media and in movies and TV is like, you know, this, the most catastrophic possible thing that can happen. And there's this Mm -hmm. huge fear around it. And that fear is what ultimately like controls people and motivates this sort of good girl. So yeah, I mean, I'm like such a long-winded answer, but I think I just really felt like, you know, so motivated because not only of my personal experience, Mm. but really I think just because of this collective, like waking up that needs to happen around this. And what's 
have been the responses to the film? The film was recently um, released on Amazon UK. It's available to rent. So if you haven't seen it, please go and see it. It's a brilliant, brilliant film. But I'm curious, um, what have been the, some of the responses that um, you've seen? Well, it's so interesting, Lenise, because the responses, um, I don't know, they're hard to categorize. I'll say the re- some of the responses have been the same as like when we even announced we were doing the film, right? So we have, you know, what I would, call, you know, I think there are like a lot of second wave feminists and I would say, um, you know, I would say feminists of like a certain generation, you know, maybe Gen X and older um, were very, very alarmed by the movie and, you know, really feel that it's um, dangerous to talk about these stories. Um, in the movie, we have some stories that are very difficult to hear um, about uh, some families uh, who lost their daughters from pulmonary embolisms, um, which is a rare side effect. We can say rare, but you know, what's not rare are blood clots, um, which lead to the pulmonary embolisms. Um, and so they really, you know, I, I think whenever you start to talk about, um, in any way, right. Like women who were damaged by birth control, whether that's a stroke or an embolism, or in these cases, a death, Um, you know, you start to trigger all those like feminist second wave alarm bells, you know? Um, and so people were not, you know, happy. And I think the response has been like consistent in that way. So I think that, um, we've seen some like incredible reviews and articles of the movie, um, you know, people that are just so passionate about it. And I think those are people like, just to give an example, you know, Jamila Jamil, who's one of my favorite feminists and and activists. Um, You know, she had us on her podcast and she just was blown away by the movie and completely got it. Mm. As a feminist, completely got it. And then it was interesting because then her Twitter feed was attacked by, you know, more conservative OBGYN people and people that were, you know, mad that she was supporting the movie and felt so it's, there's a, there's a bit of a war. I would say that um, when we were presenting the film, you know, when you were there speaking on the panel in London, when Ricky and I were in uh, Berlin and London a couple of weeks ago, I would say that a lot of that sort of like feminist like infighting, I guess I would call it. I would say like that was largely absence. And I don't think that's because of just because you aren't dealing with a, an abortion, you know, ban in in Europe and, and the UK. I think it's actually deeper. Um yeah, that would be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I won't even begin, but but I noticed that, you know, um for instance in London, I feel like at that screening, you know, it's like people are able to take in the film and then ask the real questions like, Mm. okay, so now what do we do? And does fertility awareness method work? And, but I have a friend who got pregnant on fertility awareness method. And so what do we use and how, you know, like really focusing on the, the concrete issue at hand, you know, how do we kind of navigate this space where we don't have tons of options right now. Right. Whereas I feel sometimes the response has been, you know, here from some of the, in the U S from some of the liberal media, more of a, like a backslap, you know what I mean? More of a little bit like put those girls in their place. Like you stay in your place and you're not, you're not being a good feminist. This is not um, a movie that anyone needs. And this is dangerous. And this is going to, this is, you know, fear mongering. And I think, I think Ricky was um, actually, that might've come up also on her BBC Women's Hour interview, something about fear-mongering, she said. And I think that word fear-mongering is super interesting, right? Mm. Because if you're being accused of fear-mongering, well, there must be 
something to fear. Like, what are you (laughs) (laughs) mongering about? You know, it's sort of like, it's interesting. And, And I feel that, I feel that in the movie, we were, you know, conservative. Like, for instance, we don't talk about cancer. I mean, cancer connections, if you want to look at scientific evidence between the connection between taking hormonal contraceptives and certain cancers and certain autoimmune diseases, I mean, those stats are out there. Those studies are out there. Like we don't even bring that up in the movie, right? And the reason we don't bring that up is because there's a lot of controversy around it in the medical industry and this study and that study. And so we didn't even touch that, you know, um, people talk about whether these drugs can affect fertility, right. In later years, that's controversial to talk about. We don't touch that in the movie. I, I feel like, you know, if, if we wanted to be fear mongering, if we wanted to, you know, re- we, we really, I feel like, you know, look at, um, I feel like the approach we take is is historical. We look at history, we look at race, we look at body literacy, we look at, you know, side effects, we look at, you know, I don't know, I, to, to us, I feel like we did a good job. If you want to say this is a one-sided, you know, movie, yeah, okay. You can say this is a one-sided movie. You could also say the business of being born is quote unquote a one-sided movie. But our approach is like we don't need to make a 90-minute movie that balances all the benefits of, you know, hormonal contraception with the downsides because I believe, you know, we touch on that in the beginning of the movie and we acknowledge that, you know, there's a deep connection with, you know, women's liberation and the pill. But I feel like that is the mainstream narrative. Okay. That is the mainstream narrative. And, and any, you know, medical practitioner you go to is going to recommend the pill or the patch or the ID or hormonal contraception. They're going to push it. They're going to recommend it. They're not going to have a nuanced conversation with you about, do you prefer hormonal or non-hormonal? That is not happening. Yeah. It's so fascinating, the, that word fear-mongering and the idea that being more aware of what you're putting in your body and the side effects of what you're putting in your body could be considered fear-mongering. And, you know, you're exactly right when you say that the other side of the narrative has been told by doctors, by medical professionals who say, go on the pill go on, take the marine, have the marina inserted. It's safe. It's fine. And to have a wider conversation where you are able to understand the side effects and you know this whole idea of informed consent and body literacy um, is a really, really interesting one. I am really curious about what you have coming up next because your films, I've seen The Business of Being Born, I've seen The Business of Birth Control (laughs) and both films. I know you have other films, but those films for me are really evocative and emotional. The Business of Being Born, I actually saw while I was pregnant with my son. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was on Netflix or Amazon in the UK. Um, So I watched it and it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, So what do you have coming up next? Good question. (laughs) I know. Well, right now, as you said, like, so we are still, so the business of birth control just came out um, in April of this year in the States. And like you said, we just, it was just released on Amazon in the UK. Um, And so right now we're still kind of pretty deeply engaged in kind of getting that film distributed, Mm. you know, because we aren't on any kind of a global streamer, like a Netflix. So we are doing it like territory by territory, which is a lot of work. Um, And so what we've just actually launched this week is we decided that because the business of being born and the business of birth control and our other films. So just, we have a four-part series called More Business of Being Born, which is a follow-up to The Business of Being Born. And that kind of goes a little bit deeper um, into things. There's an episode on VBAC. There's an episode on Ina Mae Gaskin. 
There's an episode on just celebrity birth stories, you know, things like that. Um, And then we have a nine-part body literacy series called More Business of Birth Control um, that we launched. And that's more of like in a class kind of structure. So it's like video clips and links and articles and again, meant to follow up the business of birth control for people who want a little bit more information. So I think that what we, so what we decided to do was say, okay, none of our work right now is available like on a Netflix or whatever. So we've created our own like little mini streaming platform and uh, we calling it the business of film circle. And so basically what we're offering people right now is to go on and instead of having like monthly, you know, streaming dues, you just pay like a one-time fee and then you have lifetime access to all of our films. Um, And it's super affordable and we're offering a 40% discount for birth workers and reproductive health professionals and sex educators and anybody in the field. So we've made it super accessible and we're doing this promotion right now where if you join the film circle, you get to gift the film circle membership to a friend. So it's like a buy one, you know, gift one. So that's what we just launched this week. And we're super excited because, you know, we've we've gotten great response and so many people have signed up. And so in addition to accessing all of our film content, you also get, we have a, like a video archive of about 40 hours that's different, you know, classes and courses and recordings with different, um, hormonal health coaches. So you have access to that whole library. And then we do like a monthly Ask Me Anything series. So Ricky and I host a series where we bring different professionals on like yourself. And we have kind of a big like meeting format where we, you know, pick a topic and people come on and ask questions and get their questions answered for the reproductive health. So it's cool because it's kind of like joining like a mini film archive that you own for the rest of your life, but then you also are in part of this community as well. So um, that's what we're working on now because we're learning that, you know, it's one thing to make the content and then the distribution of the content has almost become so complicated right now in this landscape. It's just very, you know, crowded as you know, and Mm. so we're doing that. And then, um, I don't know, we're looking at a couple projects. Everyone's pushing us to do the business of menopause because that is becoming. I was, was going to say that. I was I was <laughs> thinking, I wonder if they're going to do anything about HRT or menopause. And there was an, actually a really interesting article in New York Magazine about, you know, the business of like midlife, which you should read if you haven't read already. Oh, Yeah. I know. I saw, wait, was this the one in the cut? It was in the cut yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. I know, because I saw like Naomi Watts has launched a menopause brand and like all of these celebrities now. And I thought it was sort of interesting to think that, you know, these women that are like my generation, the Gen Xers are, you know, looking at a different lifespan. Like everybody's looking to live into their nineties, right? And so it becomes more about how do you extend right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you extend this period of like middle age, I guess, you know, how do you extend that as long as possible? Um, I think it's fascinating. I don't know, like, it's interesting. I don't know how we'd approach it, Lenise, because I feel like, you know, with childbirth and like with contraception, I feel that a lot of what we did in the film was kind of unveil either what I feel are, you know, kind of not very transparent (laughs) policies. Whereas with the menopause piece, it's different because it's more the opposite. It's more like nobody in the medical community has any answers and nobody's talking about it. So women have sort of taken it into their own hands to start their own companies. And I guess maybe because the medical community hasn't figured out how to profit off it yet in the same way, or you know, maybe they're not as interested in controlling aging as they're interested in controlling fertility and procreation. 
Um, I think they just care less about women past fertile age as, as a society is my guess. But um, so I think we'd have to figure out like Ricky and I've talked about it, like what's, you know, what's the way sort of in, and for us, it was sort of like also about this, the aging, like we talked yeah. about doing a piece on aging, you know, cause Ricky's sort of always obsessed that like all of, you know, these contemporaries or people she knows, you know, they get like the same plastic surgery and everybody has like the same face. And, you know, there seems to be this like idea about aging or she let her hair go completely gray and got a lot of pushback for that, you know? And so I think that that would be also interesting to put together, right? Yeah. Like as part of aging in the menopause piece, I, I, I do think that there's, um, there's a definite, like, it's not even like there's misinformation in the menopause space. Like there is, there's just lack of, there's just zero information. Like people are just fumbling in the dark in absolutely, you know, and um, I was reading yesterday online, Nicole Jardim, who's one of the um, hormonal health coaches who's in our movie. She had a whole post on her Instagram about this because so many women in perimenopause and menopause are getting prescribed the pill. Yeah. It's what they're getting prescribed. And she was just saying something simple in her post, like, Hey, I think it's actually a lot safer to do bioidentical hormones. If you're going to do hormones, you know, don't do the pill. And anyway, she got like severe, like really attacked. And it started this whole confrontation with doctors. And I was shocked reading the comment thread to see that like some of the women said that they have to use the pill because it's covered by insurance where the bioidenticals are not covered by insurance. So they can't afford them. And I was like, oh my God, that's fascinating. Like I never thought of that, you know, but it's like now the pill has another way to make money. Yeah. you know, is being this kind of like cheap substitute for bioidentical hormone replacement. But anyway, it's a very interesting yeah. like comment thread on her, on her, on her website. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you all day. You have so, yeah, you're so interesting. <laughs> um, so you've shared a lot. You've shared your own story, very personal aspects of your own experience with the pill and coming off of it. And then of course, there are all the brilliant films that you've made. For someone listening to this podcast today, what's the one thought that you would love to leave them with? Um, I guess I just love to leave everybody with this idea of, you know, there is no kind of like one size fits all solution for any of this. And there's no shame and there's no judgment. And, you know, you've just got to do your research and do what works for you. And, you know, if that means that you are going to choose to be on hormonal birth control for a number of years, because that is what works for your lifestyle, you know, go do that. And there's no reason to feel you know, bad or, or worried, or there's no fear, just, you know, just research and understand and know that, you know, simple things that, you know, you might be depleting your body of of certain minerals. You might want to take some supplements, you know, and take care of yourself in certain ways, but, you know, everybody has to make these decisions in the way that suits them and their lifestyle. And, you know, I think that, Sometimes, you know, I'm sure you're the same, Lenise, like we're in a bubble of a lot of women who are looking for, you know, solutions outside of maybe mainstream, like medical advice, or they haven't liked what they've been told by their GPs. And, you know, so they're looking for other solutions. And so they're open. Um, And I just think that, you know, everybody is on their own journey. And, you know, the most important thing is just to, you know, advocate and and research and do what's right for you. But I would also, you know, encourage people that if you are in a medical setting and you are not feeling like you're being heard and you're not feeling like you're getting the answers that you need, you know, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't think like, well, I I can't afford 
you know, a naturopath, or I can't afford, I can't do this, or I'm just a busy working mom. I don't have time to to deal with this because it doesn't take a lot. Um, There are great resources out there. There's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's, you know, wonderful books and practitioners like you, Lenise, and, you know, you can get to the heart of things fairly quickly Mm. and you'd be surprised at how many things, you know, you can resolve. So I would say, you know, be open and and understand that there's a whole world of practitioners that has developed, um, whether it's in the world of hormonal coaching or, or naturopaths, and they're not out to go against medical advice. They're there to like support and integrate and, and expand so I, I know a lot of times for women, you can get very confused because you're you're feeling something and you tell your doctor and your doctor says, well, I'm not going to test your hormones. That's a waste of time. We don't test hormones. And then you talk to a naturopath or somebody who says, well, you must get your, and it's very confusing. And there's a lot of conflicting evidence. So I think there's no wrong or, or, or right. There's no shame. There's no judgment. It's just like, take your time and, and be compassionate with yourself Um, but there's a lot of free information out there online and there's a lot of great resources. So, um, you know, just don't, don't accept, um, being told like, well, there's nothing else you can do and you're stuck with this because, um, that's, that's hardly ever true. I, I completely agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Oh, people can find me. Well, our film is on um, our social media is at business of birth control. And then my personal handle is at Abby Epstein XOXO. And uh, our website is the business of dot life, the business of life. Find me there. All of those will be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much. It's been amazing having you on the show. I know that listeners will learn so much from what you've shared and will learn so much from your film. So thank you again. Thank you, Lenise. It's been such a pleasure. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.